Bible, I would invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark, page 709 in our church Bibles. In just a moment or two, we're going to read from chapter 4. Mark's Gospel, chapter 4, page 709 in our church Bibles. Okay, let's hear the word of the Lord. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables. And in his teaching said, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, multiplying 30, 60, or even 100 times. Then Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seeds along the path where this word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others like seeds sown among thorns hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. And then finally, just verses 33 and 4 at the end there. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them. And as much as they can understand, he did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. And may God please have mercy on us as we um, seek to understand it. Let's pray together, please. Father, we thank you for the absolute privilege to sing your praise. And now, God, we thank you for the privilege of being able to open up your word. So will you please help me to speak clearly from it? And we ask, God, that you would address every one of us in the very depths of our being this morning. And as we need, that you would bring our lives into the true reality of what it means to know you, to love you, and to follow you. So what we need, God, is we need you to have your way. And we need in that your mercy. And so we ask for it. 
for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, the crowds are continuing to follow Jesus. Mark tells us that the crowds were so large that Jesus, as he taught by the lake, came up with the idea, if you would, of a floating pulpit. That's chapter 3, verse 9, if your Bible's open. Because of the crowds, Jesus told the disciples to have a small boat ready for him. And then he continues on here in chapter 4. And Jesus put his uh, floating pulpit out on the lake because of the push and the press of the crowds. And yet, at the same time the crowds were increasing, we know because we've been studying Mark that the general climate of unbelief and opposition was growing against Jesus. We learned that last time that Jesus was opposed by his own family and he was opposed by the religious establishment of the day. So his own family thought he was mad and the religious people thought he, thought he was bad In fact, they thought he was so bad that they said that the ministry of Jesus Christ was fueled by dark powers. And yet, despite all that bad press, the crowds continue to come. So much so, apparently, um, this is the place to be. This is the hot ticket, if you would. Chapter 4, verse 1, at the end there, all the people were along the water's edge. So, clearly, Jesus drew a crowd. And we might say, well, that's understandable. After all, it was Jesus. Right? And so he was doing miracles that they had never seen before. And he was saying things that they really never had heard before. And he was loving people. And he was caring for people in a manner which they had never felt before. So again, it was Jesus. And who would want to be near him and with him and learn from him? It's Jesus. And of course, that explanation in one way is true. But it misses another way altogether. And what it misses is the context, if you like, the background here. Because what happens is sometimes we come to our Bible within our own personal context and our own framework first, which is not horrible, but it's not helpful when it's the first step. Because the first step is always investigation, which means we have to understand what the readers were hearing. We have to know their context if we're truly going to understand what's being said. So when we see the word crowds, And we don't do any investigation. We go back into the line. It's like, oh yeah, of course it was. It was Jesus. And and people love Jesus. Who wouldn't want to see Jesus? But we miss the fact. And this is what I want you to know. We miss the fact that these crowds had years and years of history related to the things which was being said by Jesus and which was being said about Jesus. So for example, when John the Baptist was preaching one of his sermons about Jesus, because all sermons should be about Jesus. But anyway, chapter 1, verse 15, John says, The time has come, the kingdom of God is near. And they all had a line of understanding of what all that kingdom talk meant. And so it was almost like many of the listeners stopped listening after John said, The time has come, the kingdom of God is near. And they never heard John finish to say, Repent and believe the good news, believe on Jesus. In other words, they didn't hear the gospel which was the entryway into the kingdom. And the gospel that Jesus was preaching was said that forgiveness with God only comes through me. And all the external elements of religion, all the religious disciplines which they practiced, their national heritage, which they had come to rely on, to give them, they were taught a right standing with God. Jesus is on the scene and saying, God does not accept that. It's all on me now. And because the crowds were not carefully listening, verse 24, they did not consider carefully what they heard. They only heard, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. 
And so what happened was they became fueled with the notion and the expectation that Jesus has come to earth to establish, to establish an earthly kingdom right then and there. Now we should know the crowds got that idea because that's what they were being fed by the religious leaders. In other words, when the Jewish scribes and Pharisees, when they would open their Old Testament, by the way, the same Old Testament that Jesus read, they would say, yep, the Messiah, when he comes, he's going to be king here, he's going to be king now, and he's going to right this ship, he's going to fix our world personally and nationally, prophet, priest, king, it's going to be great, he's going to reign in righteousness, and he's going to reign in dominance, so enemies, Rome, enemies, beware. So when the crowds hear some of Jesus' words about the kingdom, and they saw his deeds, miracles, exorcism, they were like, we need to get to him. We need to see him right now. However, and listen carefully, one of the side effects that we're going to see is that if we come to Jesus either with our own agenda or a misguided notion of Jesus, that makes it harder and harder for us to hear what Jesus is really saying. And the parable of the sower is going to reveal that. And I'm going to say that again. When we come to Jesus, either with our own agenda or with a misguided notion of who he is, it makes it harder and harder to hear what he's actually saying. And again, the parable of the sower is going to show us that. In other words, if you like, the parables Jesus tells are so often a dirt-revealing mirror. And those parables reveal the true spiritual condition of all of his listeners. Now, how do I know that? Look at your Bible, please, if it's open. Verse 11b, to those outside, everything is said in parables. Okay, why? Okay, well, that, it's easy. That way, everybody lives a good story. The parables are going to be so easy to understand. It's going to be great. Well, no, look at your Bible. Verse 12, they may, ever, they may be ever seen, but never perceiving, ever hearing, but never understanding, Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. So it's almost like Jesus is saying in a really suitable way, look, you don't believe me, so you don't care. So you don't hear, so you can't see. And you don't obey. And even though you keep showing up to story time, right, synagogue worship, public worship, you remain unforgiven. And so you remain unconverted. Because the way that you listen to me reveals whether you're with me or you're not. So let's be mindful here. These crowds are filled with Jewish religious people, synagogue worshipers. Therefore, since three of the four soils in the parable are essentially useless, we find that the majority of his listeners in the crowds are finding great difficulty in understanding the parables which he told, so they don't understand, not because Jesus wasn't a good communicator. Right? Or not because he totally blew it when it came to his uh, audience profile. No. The reason why they couldn't understand because, was because they didn't want to understand. They felt that they didn't need to understand, which again gave the indication of their true spiritual condition. And loved ones, what, is, what was true then? It's true now. In fact, it's true right here, right now. So when Jesus declared the kingdom to the crowd, yeah, that messianic expectation was, was felt. 
And yeah, they came maybe because of the miracles and the exorcisms and, and nobody expended as much energy on the crowds as Jesus did. However, unbelief is still the order of the day for the lion's share of people in that crowd. And I want you to see that the approach then that Jesus takes here is such that he's not really impressed by the sheer numbers. Right? Because a good question that someone could ask is, you know, Jesus, why didn't you just ride out that wave of popularity all the way? Right? If it's a numbers game, he's winning. But a better question is not why he didn't do that. It's why does it seem like he did the reverse? Because after all, if you have crowds, surely you like to keep crowds. And Jesus had all the accessories, right? All the accompaniments to keep the thing going. I learned this week that the, the play, The Phantom of the Opera, which if you haven't seen, go see it. But it's, been, it's the longest running show on Broadway since 1988 it's been running. They do a show in the evening, five nights a week, and then two shows on Saturday. I don't think they do a show on Sunday. Good for them. But anyway, it's an awesome play. And clearly, there's something going on that people keep wanting to see. And clearly, Jesus has the recipe down for crowds. And all he had to do was say the words, earthly king, and right now, and that is all they would have needed to hear, and that whole thing just catches on fire. And let's go get Jesus and take him to the capital city. We're going to win, finally. But you see, that's why when you read the Gospels, John's Gospel, for instance, this is what John says, they came intending to make Jesus a king by force, Yet he slipped away, and no one could find him. Why? Well, because he understood that their expectations of a kingdom was completely different than what he was saying and what he had come to do in terms of a kingdom. Therefore, Jesus did not come to ride the wave of popular acclaim or imagination you know, of just how great it could be if Jesus took over everything right now. I mean, it would be so great. Because if you think about it, we're fed that so often, right? If Jesus ruled this world right now, oh, holy cow, it would be so great. Wow. Just like it is right now, it would be great. But you know, as you think through that a little bit, that sounds an awful lot like the second temptation that the evil one offered Jesus before he went to the cross. You see, what we forget is this is temporal. Everything. It's very fragile. It's very broken, it's very fallen, and it's not the end game. And the plan of an earthly kingdom, as the crowds understood, didn't call for grace. Think, all it calls for is for people who want to be number one, think they should be number one, and are willing to follow anyone who they think can make them number one. That's never been Christianity. And if you get a good history book, you'll find that many, many people have fallen for many, many things like that by dictators and tyrants and people who came claiming that they were the ones that was going to fix everything. Now, we're not going to actually get to the explanation of the parable this morning. And here's why. As important as the parable is, and it is very important, the questions around the parable are just as important. It takes us right to our first point, number one. Disciples ask a question. So if your Bible is open, you'll see around verse 3, a farmer went out to sow his seed and so on, and Jesus tells the story. He finishes, verse 10, 
the 12 were around him and they have some alone time with Jesus, others also. And I want you to notice that they're not asking Jesus for an explanation of the parable singular, right? But they're asking for explanation of parables plural, right? So my guess is is that most of us might think the 12 were saying to Jesus, you know, explain this parable of the sower. Clearly they are not. Now, do they need an explanation of the parable of the sower? Yes, of course they do. Did they ask specifically for an explanation of the parable of the sower? No, they did not. Verse 10, again, parables singular. In fact, if you read Matthew's gospel, Jesus told them the same parable. Matthew says, the disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? That was their question. It was a really good question because they saw what was happening. And it almost seems like they were saying, Jesus, you know, you may not be connecting with people. And there's probably a better way because parables aren't really working here. But you see, that's what happens when we think with our Bibles closed. Everything is seen with the eyes only. Okay, that's point number one, the disciples' question. Point number two, Jesus' answer to their question, which comes in verse 11. The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. Now notice the secret is singular. And I also want you to know that the word there in the Greek is the word mysterion, from which we get our word mystery. It's a word used a lot in the epistles, Paul and Ephesians, and in the pastoral epistles. It's the mystery of the gospel that's now been revealed. Now this mystery, Jesus said, verse 11b, which was previously hidden, is now made known to you. But then he says, but to those outside. Now let's stop there just for a second because Mark keeps making that distinction of outsiders and insiders. In fact, it's the core of the story thus far along in the gospel. The distinction between, okay, who's the actual insiders and who are the outsiders? And so if you read the gospel, we've been learning this, the people who think, oh yeah, for sure I'm an insider. They're not. And the people who think there's no way I could ever be an insider. I want to. They are made so. And thus far, as you think about this, those who think they are on the inside, Jesus' family, Pharisees, scribes, and much of the crowds, how do we know? Well, one of the things we know is they constantly make judgments on Jesus. They reveal that they're actually on the outside. And here's the great news. Sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes who are hearing Jesus, they are made clean and they are brought inside. Now that's amazing, isn't it? Kind of like amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So the language of the all writers, if you would, is what? You're doing it wrong, Jesus. You're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. The language of the sinners are, I'm wrong. Please help me, Jesus. Isn't this common? When we are filled with pride, we fail to see our sin. And when we fail to see our sin, our mouth is wide open making judgments on everything and everyone. But when we walk in humility, we actually see our sin. And our mouths are open, but they're lost in the wonder of the gospel that God would ever save a wretch like me. So those who think they're all right, the shiny people, They're actually dingy, and the dingy people are actually shiny because Jesus made them that way. Jesus continues in verse 11, to the outsider, everything is said in parables. Now, again, would you please indulge me here? 
Everything is said in parables so that everything will be easy to understand. Audience connection will happen. And everyone will want to be a part of the family of God. <laughs> it doesn't say that. Look at your Bible. To those outside, everything is said in parables. Okay, why? That they may ever be seen, but never perceiving. The Greek word there has the idea of experiencing the truth. Experiential truth. Think of it like this. To see in your mind the truth that's being conveyed, that you might enjoy it and apply it in your life. Okay? Ever seeing, but never perceiving. Ever hearing, but never understanding. You can't put two and two together and then go, yes, I understand it. I get it. I get it. Because if they got it, what does the last line say? They got it. They would turn and be forgiven. Converted. So, they would experience what the parable was conveying by seeing their sin, seeing their Savior, the only one who could rescue them from it. They'd cry out to Jesus to forgive them. And because he is the secret of the kingdom being revealed in the parable, they receive just that. Now, I want to tell you something about that last little phrase, they might turn and be forgiven. Because I was thought, okay, what does that mean? Well, when you look at the Greek, it comes to us by way of uh, eris passive subjunctive. Okay, what does that mean? This is what it means. It's really, really important. Instantaneous action on the person being referred to. So what was previously not true is now true. I'll say it again. Instantaneous action. The person hears the parable. They understand it. It comes on them. Instantaneous action on the person referred to so that what was not previously true about them is now true. In other words, think of it like this. If they understood what Jesus was saying in the parable, it would then reveal the true condition of their heart. And then they would know God's forgiveness and they would become part of God's family. And if you take all of it into account and you don't ignore it, this is why we go verse by verse because we can't ignore it. This is what you begin to realize. When the disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, why parables? His answer to the 12 is essentially this, that he has chosen to reveal himself in a way which is veiled and indirect. Let me say that again. He has chosen to reveal himself in a way that is veiled and indirect. And if you don't see this, we miss something of massive importance. And what we may feel, fall foul of saying is, oh yeah, the secret to a great sermon is exactly the secret of a great speech. Right? You give the people little icebreakers, make them like you, make them laugh. You've got them for the rest of the time. Not exactly. Not exactly. Parables, Jesus says, does not make it easier for everyone to understand. In fact, it's the opposite. Here's why. The secret of the kingdom is Jesus. He's the secret of the kingdom. He's how one gets in. He's how one stays in. It's, who, it's he whose honor we work for, his blessing we enjoy, righteousness given. Therefore, there is nothing about the kingdom which does not have to do with Jesus. So he's establishing the kingdom. He was revealing the kingdom, but he's revealing it in a way which is veiled and indirect for this reason. Now again, please pay attention. The parables then, they serve as a way to sift the wheat from the chaff, right? The parables serve as a, as a means, we'll say, 
to separate the wheat from the chaff. Those who come in humility and trust and those who come as a customer, ready to make judgments because we all know the customer is always right. Jesus would say, where there is a realization of genuine need and genuine faith, the parable will lead people to me. Where there is not, the people are actually going to be perplexed and deflected by the truth and they'll leave not understanding. In other words, and this is why I always say it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. In other words, it's only by faith, a faith which is given, that a person will recognize that the Son of God is Jesus. I'm going to say that again. It's only by faith, a faith which is given, that a person will ever recognize the Son of God in Jesus. The majority of the people in the crowds were religious, yet they cannot make the connection. They knew their Bibles, trained for years, reading the same Bible as Jesus. They cannot make the connection. They are in the presence of the greatest preacher and the greatest person in the entire universe. They cannot make the connection. All the conditions are right. They cannot make the condition. And surely, Romans 1 tells us that on some level, their frailty, their inability to keep God's commands or even the man-made commands, that's there in their gut. But by suppressing the truth, they cannot make the connection. As then, so now. Christmas services, Easter services, events, Sunday by Sunday, serving, settings, good. Still, many cannot make the connection. Think with me, would you? If you ask the average person who Jesus is, you'll get all kinds of answers. But if you ask them, is Jesus the Son of God? Most people will say no. Like, you should try it. They'll say no because it's only by faith, a faith which is given, that a person will ever recognize the Son of God in Jesus. I mean, how can a person believe that a bloody, naked young man on a cross is the Son of God and that young man is ultimately the answer to every question and every issue that we will ever face individually or the world will face globally. How can that happen? So the stories Jesus tell, they serve as a divine, if you would, filtration system to reveal those who come to Jesus in childlike faith and trust, thus understanding what Jesus is teaching against those who come with indifference, who come in arrogance, come you know, because mama dragged them in here. And they don't understand what Jesus is saying. And loved ones, those who come in childlike faith and get it, here's the thing, they're going to get more of it and more of it. And those who come with indifference, skepticism, superiority, or apathy, or even confident in their own strength, they don't get it. And here's the sad part. With each passing sermon, they get less and less of it. Why? Because it's only by faith, which is given, that the Son of God will be seen as He actually is. How do I know that? Well, it's actually the words of Jesus Christ. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, 13 and following. The twelve are with Jesus, and He asks them, who do people say the Son of Man is? And so they say, well, some people say you're John the Baptist, some people say you're Elijah, others Jeremiah and the prophets. He says, okay, but what about you? 
who do you say I am? Listen to what Peter says. He says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And then this is what Jesus says. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. What's Jesus saying? It's only by faith which is given that the Son of God will be seen as he actually is. As it's just an aside here, doesn't this remind us as Christians, if we speak of our conversion as if we were the strength behind it all, you know, I just kept searching and I kept making a great number of the right decisions and, and there he was, we would absolutely negate the fact that Jesus saves people only one way. And that is by his grace. And that calls for humility. One of my favorite hymns, we sing it here on occasion. I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, receiving Jesus through the Word, creating faith in Him. But the Spirit does move, and people do come to Jesus. The parables then, all of them, reveal a genuine work of God or some false, spurious, uh, spurious, one-and-done profession of faith. And the four soils in the parable reveal what takes place in false professions and what takes place in a real profession, right? So some people, they hear the word, they're confused. They walk out and that's it. Some people go to Jesus and they say, okay, I've heard you. Here, now you fix this because I heard you could. And then he doesn't and then they leave. Some people are like, me, when I'm hungry in front of the refrigerator, right? Let's get this done. I get this sermon over with. I've got riches to spend. I've got some fun I need to have, worries to try to deal with, money to try and earn to stabilize things. Contrast that with to a person who comes in and listens to Jesus in humility to say, I am such a sinner. Will you please have mercy on me? Will you please forgive me and will you help me and take over my life? And to be really, really honest with you, I can't think of a Sunday that I didn't come into this place thinking that. And loved ones, those reactions, says Jesus, given in the parables of the sower, it happens every time the word of God is correctly, correctly taught. Whether it's here or anywhere else. Two poems. They're short. Two people look out from prison bars. One sees mud. One sees stars. Last stanza. One ship sails east, another west. By the self-same winds that blow, tis the set of the sails, and not the gales that tells the way we go. You see, that's why two people can walk out of a sermon and hear two different things, come up with two different states, belief and behavior or unbelief with a growing atrophy setting in to the true things of God. In other words, the truth and obedience to it begins to look impossible when we all know that all things are possible with God. Finally, last one, it'll be brief. Jesus has a question for the disciples, right? 
Verse 13, don't you understand this parable? Then how will you understand any parable? Now, this is, this is what Jesus is saying. The parable of the sower is the key to understanding all the other parables. If you like, this parable is foundational. It's what a legend is to a map. You get this, and then you're going to be able to understand what he's saying and how to understand all the other parables. And the fact that the disciples are there, ears bent towards Jesus, ready to learn from him, it reveals the grace of God is active in their life, even with all their fumbling and stumbling and bumbling in the course of their ministry with Jesus. Let me end with a quote from Sinclair, Sinclair Ferguson and in just a few words. When the people listened to Jesus, some of their minds were set against the truth. They wouldn't say that they were set against the truth per se. They were set against any other truth other than the truth, the way they wanted it. Post-truth era. If that's you, I can say with humility and love, you'll never come to Jesus if you remain that way. Yeah, you'll come to church. Yeah, you'll listen to sermons, but it's like water off a duck's back. You're religious, sure, but you may not be converted. So I would just plead with you to cry out to God for mercy right there in your seat. You don't have to wave your hands, just right there in your seat. Last thing I did before I left here Friday night, I wrote this out. I'm going to, if you would, put words in Jesus' mouth. In light of what we've just learned, I think Jesus, in love, would say something like this. At times, I fear for a few of you in your dullness to God's word. You are unmoved because you're unattached and you are attached to a different Savior. You're attached to a different Savior other than the one who's given in His Word. Thus, when His Word is preached, there is no concern in you when there should be. So you remain dull. And if you stay that way, you remain lost for all eternity. So I would just plead with you to repent. And believe. The last word is from Jesus. It's for all of us. Verse 24. Consider carefully what you hear. With the measure you used, it will be measured to you and even more. Whoever has will be given more. And whoever does not have, even what they have, will be taken from them. Let's bow our heads, please. As we prepare to take communion of those who will be serving, if you would just make your way forward now. Father, as we make the transition from the ministry of the word to the ministry of the table, will you, will you please help us to be very, very contemplative now about what we've just heard and what we are going to hear. And we would ask this for your glory and for the good of the people, for Jesus' sake.